0: Welcome to the Frontline Response to Health and Homelessness podcast series. This series is based on the articles published in the March 2020 edition of Parity magazine, which is available on the link accompanying the podcast. That magazine and the podcast series give voice to those with lived experience of homelessness, those working on the frontline, and those that support the sector in delivering services to people who are homeless. My name is Dan Fleming and I'm delighted to introduce our host John Willis who leads the inclusive health team for St Vincent's Health Australia. John's going to introduce our guest in just a moment. As we're recording during the COVID-19 pandemic, John and our guest will be with us by phone for this episode. John Willis, over to you. Thanks Dan and it's my
1: pleasure to welcome Kim Rayner. Kim, uh, you're the clinical lead innovation for microprojects Projects in Brisbane, and it's wonderful to have you on our little series. Welcome. How are you going? I'm good. Thanks, John. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It sounds like you've had a very busy morning, so we'll, we'll jump into this. Um, we've sure. previously chatted with your boss, Karen Walsh, and she focused primarily on the Australian Alliance, then homelessness and homelessness, and the national picture. So I was looking forward to chatting to you a little bit more about Micah Projects in specific Um, And the information in your article entitled, Inclusive Health Partnerships, 14 Years of Local Evidence. So you guys have been at this a while and had some very detailed research and evaluation components, which are great. So you were one of the first homeless agencies that I'd heard of that started integrating a health response within your services. I'm sure there was possibly others, but congratulations on being a trailblazer in this space. Well done. Thank you. So, let's just to begin, can I ask you to tell us how you started embedding the housing first and social model of healthcare? I imagine it had its challenges back in 2006. Is it any easier now? Um,
2: yeah, look, when we first started that work back in 2006, I guess the Vulnerability Index survey kind of highlighted the extensive health needs amongst people experiencing homelessness. Um, and so... There was always sort of an acknowledgement of a social model of healthcare here at Micro Projects where um, by just addressing someone's housing situation without looking at the other factors in their life, the outcomes were going to be fairly short term. And so that integration of housing um, and healthcare became fairly critical to um, addressing the critical issues in someone's life but, but also achieving that stability. So. You know, our framework has always been that housing is a health outcome and you've probably heard me talk about this before and that healthcare is a housing outcome and so when we started to really drive the embedding of healthcare into our homeless teams and our social support teams, that was kind of the simplest message for everybody working, whether they're a clinician or a non-clinician, that we're uh, delivering this as a multidisciplinary team and we need to see those two key factors as critical to what we do and so um, most people kind of accepted that and it made sense. That yes, you know, uh, you know, in housing a person, I also need to be looking at the healthcare needs, both their physical and mental health needs, and try and work out how we can address both of those. But what's also mm. been really fundamental is, without housing, you just don't have that stability platform to start to really address someone's long term health or mental health needs or AOD use. Um, it's very hard for people to kind of move forward in their life. So. Um, but equally once people are housed, often their housing is at risk if we don't actually address those long-term health issues. So for us, the two, you know, have to be together. Uh, I think we asked a question there, John, about challenges um, and if any challenges still exist. I think the early challenges were just a lot of staff education around those two principles. Um, the other challenges were funding. Now, there was a little uh, funding, particularly here in Queensland, it's a... a You know, there just wasn't any funding around integrated care models from what I could see coming up from Melbourne. Um, And so we had to work hard to sort of get data together to really push the population needs and to test and pilot a number of models, which is why we You know, I named that article, 40 Years of Local Evidence. There's been a lot of work taking place, but still we have to keep producing more evidence and more pilots. You know, I'm at a point where it'd be nice to see some sustainability and that there's an acceptance across Australia given a lot of us across Australia have been testing and delivering successful models that that these fundamental elements of the model are required and they do deliver outcomes and they're worthy of ongoing funding.
1: Mm, absolutely. Uh, the, the buzz term that I, I got out of that, um, out of your work, the, the early one, was housing is a health issue. Without it, you can't have good health. So I, I think that's been one of the best things that's come out of your work, among many others. But look, the other one that, that's that been really of interest and been a lot of discussion is assessment tools. And you guys have introduced the VI-SPDAT. Um, maybe you want to tell our listeners a little bit, just a little bit briefly about what the VI-SPDAT is and why you've chosen that as your key tool to be undertaking assessments.
2: Sure. Um, for those who don't know, the vulnerability was called the Vulnerability Index Tool and it was actually developed in the US by um, a doctor, Stephen Huang, who's a key homelessness researcher, international researcher, and um, Dr. Jim O'Connell out of health Healthcare for the Homeless. And it was a tool designed to assess security amongst people experiencing homelessness based on their morbidity profile, so the health conditions that they had um, and uh, other risk factors in their life. And that then allowed us to measure the person's um, mortality risk. And how they applied that in the States and how we applied it here was that based on a person's acuity, based on this vulnerability index assessment, you would then target your intervention to that acuity level. So the higher the acuity, the more work we need to start doing quickly to try mm. and um, obviously mitigate that mortality risk that's present. And so MICA adopted that tool, MICA Projects adopted that tool kind of over 10 years ago. Karen Walsh was CEO, brought that tool out. It's now called the Vulnerability Index Service Prioritisation Assessment Tool, so it's about prioritising services. But it's still got the same key principles in terms of data that's collected, information that's collected. Um, and so we started using that. And, and to be honest, when I first started at MICA, uh, it was probably the best uh, bit of data that I could see around the population needs and um, the risk. And also it allowed yeah. me to identify how many people had died and what they had died of. And they haven't died of mm. overdoses, which was the assumption at the time. They had died of unmet needs associated with their chronic disease. Yeah. And there's has been a lot mm. of deaths. Um, and so that tool was a game changer, I guess, at Micah. It allowed us to know so much more about the people we were supporting. It allowed us to advocate for their healthcare needs. It allowed us to know what they were and where we should prioritize our efforts in terms of funding and models of care. And it also Supported what we all know that there are multiple interconnecting factors that will influence the person's outcomes in terms of their quality of life and health outcomes, and we need to be assessing those. So I guess you know it informs our care and our priority response, but it also allowed us to inform our, to be informed from a systems perspective. Uh, it allowed us to advocate, and in fact, the vulnerability index data way back when we started with the after-hours service allowed us to get the first bit of money in Australia through the known GAP funding through Medicare Locals because we had solid local data on a a highly vulnerable and marginalised group and that Mm. if something wasn't done about that, then obviously things would continue to get worse. And so we were able to kind of move forward. So the VI for that has served two purposes. The first is obviously the screening tool and we should then respond to those key issues as practitioners and as organisations and we do that at MICA. The other is it allows us to have up-to-date data on our population that can then inform our models of care and inform our advocacy platform. So it's been fairly really critical to my work anyway and we it still does. continue to
1: reflect it. It sounds amazing. It, it covers all the key bases of work we do in this space. Well done. It's um, a little bit more of a challenge to do vi for data in a, an acute health space, but that's a, another conversation. Um, sure. Let's talk about the um, the two key key determinants of health that you, you talk about in your article, one being for homeless people, one being housing, and the other one is the access to health care. Now, I, I suppose that your article looks at a number of pilot projects that you've run, and you've discussed this in your article, how best to change the system and ensure that you address these key areas, these two key areas. So can you tell us a little bit about... Of those pilot projects and how they do inform those two areas, and also the, the importance of partnerships and how much time does it take to get those partnerships right? Sure. Um, yeah, so
2: I guess the, the two key elements is, is making sure for us, our success has been that we've got had these integrated models where we've got um, multidisciplinary teams that are well versed around social support and housing response, as well as clinicians who are well skilled in. Uh, from healthcare, mental health, AOD, and that they're always working alongside each other and that there's a collective plan for that person. So, you know, one would argue it's not rocket science. It's, um, but what I find is that you'll often find that we want to just treat a person under a, under a, under a silo or a system or a medical condition. And what we need to do when we're, we're, we're working with people who are highly at risk but have multiple complex needs, as we should do it in primary healthcare generally is we should look at the whole and we should look to address the whole. We should be always developing our models of care around that. So our success Mm. has been that we've had very high quality sort of person-centred response models. We're very focused on who we employ to work in those teams. Uh, They need to be very solution-focused. There's lots of barriers that people experience, and often people are told or, or will get agencies say to us, or they weren't compliant, or they didn't do any forms, or they didn't do this, or they haven't done that, or they discharged themselves early. And, you know, we just kind of we, we ignore that in the sense that if our team starts to talk that way, then we're just becoming another barrier to care. So we're very mm-hmm. accepting that there's challenges in a person's life, and our job is to facilitate solutions and work with that person um, and to try and put in place some real change and you know everyone that was supported uh you know they'll often make comments back to the nurses and the support workers around the persistence of the team you know people just stuck with them they kept calling they kept meeting them they really form a strong relationship they don't judge um it's the compassion there they they step by step work through the issues that are worrying them, but at the same time they highlight status and that these are the other concerns that they may have as a clinician and what they're wanting to do in that space. Um, So as a model of care, I guess it is about just having that clinical integration of physical and mental health and addiction issues being addressed alongside housing and social support, and they're Mm. all getting done at the same time, not separately by multiple agencies. Um, We drive pretty hard our linkage into support systems when we start to work with people, trying to bed down those critical factors of sustainment in community engagement, so that's housing, ongoing social support, a, you know, really solid GP relationship um, and trying to identify people who might need ongoing support. Social inclusion becomes critical, being part of a community. So they're all those components to our model. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot going on, and we and we're fairly strong advocates around um, access to systems and services. And uh, we're very good at filling in a lot of those forms and making a lot of calls for mm-hmm. the individual with the individual to get that right. access. It's not easy. Yeah. Um, so I kind of outline those models and what we do, but that's kind of the essence. And um, people can read the article with a bit more detail. In terms of partnerships, they're really fundamental. So our partnerships with the hospitals have been a big piece of our work. And the so work we did with St Vincent's, uh, where our St Vincent's nurses were part of our Pathways program, which was a post discharge service from the Royal Brisbane and the PA for those who are homeless or vulnerably housed. That became, you know, obviously a critical partnership between those tertiary hospitals, and really what became um, one of the biggest sort of outcomes of that was this awareness of the people that we support and their needs, the complexity of their needs. So if they're presenting, and yes, they're drug affected, there's so much more going on in their life, and we need to actually start to address what's happening that's leading to some of that problematic substance use and so the hospital started to engage in a very difficult dialogue which was fantastic. Um, nice. we, met, we started to identify people coming into ED so rather than people presenting to ED and then we might have got a call that they come and pick someone up from a transport perspective we would start to say actually no, we need a discharge summary, what are your key concerns of the hospital, what plan do you have in place, are there any outpatient appointments being organised so it allowed us to really drive a very proactive, integrated model of communication and talking about what's the next steps, what's the discharge plan, how do we put that in place. It's not easy, because we no. are working with, with two <laughs> systems, uh, you know, once, you know, very big hospitals and we're obviously a very small NGO, but, um, you know, where we're at now is that those hospitals know the micro-sign, they know when we come in, they know who we're working with, they know that we will advocate. But at the same time, they know that we will continue to support and work in partnership. And so that's led to some pretty phenomenal outcomes because we have better access collectively to information because we're sharing information. We have a collective understanding of what's required and, and, and who what we each need to do if we're looking at a hospital community partnership and how do we do that. Um, but you, you can never sort of um, step away. You've got to always be building those relationships with your partners, communicating what the needs are, talking about the challenges Um, so it's it's not straightforward but when we're looking at the complexity of issues facing all the people we support then we we need those partnerships to leverage from housing and from health care whether it's tertiary or primary health care from mental health um, from the AOD services from community support so
1: we spend a lot of
2: time on partnerships. Uh,
1: Kim, that's amazing work. And I, I, just for our listeners, um, the kind of work that Kim's done to get into hospitals and get that communication going has been no mean feat. Brilliant work. And, on, I, and I absolutely agree. Getting access to the, great, the bigger story and saying just saying, come and pick this patient up is what I think is so much more beneficial for the patient themselves. So excellent work. Now, the other thing I was wanting to ask you, Kim, was about you outlining your article, this idea of scaling up to ensure sustainability of some of these ideas. Can you just talk briefly what you mean by scaling up? Sure. So
2: you would see from the article that we've had a lot of pilots. Some of them have been really small funded. You know, we've got one now that's a frequent attendance program out of the Royal. I think we get funded 180000 a year. It's tiny. Um, but that the, the need... respond to even higher numbers is pretty significant. We've tested it now for three years with the Royal, Uh, we've got excellent outcomes, but we don't have scalability. And The challenge Mm -hmm. and one example to why can't we achieve scalability when there's this recognition within the hospital system, um, Queensland Government and ourselves that it's making a difference is largely because there's no funding mechanism is what we always hear. So there's, so there's two challenges. The first challenge is the, is the federal and state split between who should fund these sorts of types of programs of work. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other one is, without with the, in the absence of you know, a federal policy framework, with an, you know, obviously a funding mechanism, it's very hard for us to even uh, continue that work and get scalability. Uh, that's just one example. The post-discharge program was another. Where does that type of program fit? If it's not funded through acute mm-hmm. care resources where does it fit? Uh, if it's in primary health care most of that funding is coming into you know GPE through MBS funding so uh, I guess you know what I refer to there is uh, we have the evidence around what works and how it should and how it should be deployed these models of care what the funding would look like but there seems to be there's an absence of a central policy framework and funding mechanism across Australia to support this work. Overseas, we see it in the UK, we see it in the US in various ways, how that's funded. But here it's really a lot of pilot, grant, dollars. And if you looked at how we've been funded, we've been funded through PHN, state government, the hospital, charitable foundations, St. Vincent, SMARTA, ourselves, multiple funding streams trying to mm. continue this work. It's not really sustainable. We also lose really, really well trained, excellent staff when there's no sustainability in those contracts. You lose a lot of the intellectual knowledge, um, a lot of the systems work that you've done every time you stop a pilot and go to start another pilot. So it's really inefficient. Um, and even when we've demonstrated significant economic return in the millions, um, that kind of puts a lot of these programs in that upper right quadrant, I've been told, from our health economist, You know, it's, it's a no-brainer in terms of funding. Um, yep. You know, I think one of our projects returns $7.25 for every dollar invested. But we still often wow. get sustainable funding. And so the, the answer that I keep hearing is there is no um, policy framework or funding mechanism um, built in to deliver, you know, care in this area. And each state's a little bit different. So for us here in Queensland, that's the challenge. But, you know, nationally it's the challenge as well. Um, how do you fund integrated teams that work across, across a number of areas for people who are significantly marginalised?
1: in our society. Mm. And that's what we did talk to Karen a little bit about through the Australian Alliance End Homelessness and pushing that at a national level. Some great work there, Kim, and thanks for that explanation. It is a challenge that it's outside the normal silos of government and no-one really wants to take responsibility for it. So, we're conducting this interview under COVID-19 pandemic um, and, and I suppose that I've been asking most of the people I'm chatting to how you see this changing or any long-term improvements or changes to the way services are provided for homeless people. So do you have any thoughts at all about how COVID-19 is impacting and may impact into the long-term, Kim?
2: Uh, I really hope that COVID, that we stop and we all sit down and kind of come together, which we are doing a little bit here up at Brisbane on some other committees that I sit on asking the same question, what will we do differently? And... um, I hope we take that forward. I'm a bit worried we might just step back into what we used to do. I think what we're seeing at the moment, which has been incredibly exciting for, for us here as workers is the use of telehealth. You know, telehealth is you know only deployed in terms of rural, regional communities. We've been able to deploy telehealth now and link to people who might have struggled to come to the clinic or couldn't come to the clinic. We've been able to get teams out to them and link into our doctors and our nurse practitioners, that's been amazing because we've been able to see people and actually start a relationship and start some of that clinical process and work. I'd like to see more of that in terms of the use of IT. The flip side challenge to that is not everyone has phones, uh, mm. not everyone has IT access and so we have to be careful that we you know, are mindful of any new models we develop that we are really thinking about access and equity to the tool to engage in that, but there is a lot of benefits as well. So I think um, you know it's really increased people's access to care. Not everyone. Um, the other challenge for COVID has been that, and I talked about people not having phones, we are doing a whole lot of immunisation work across the hotels. A lot of these people have been put into hotels, but no one's really thought about preventative health or public health, or are people getting their healthcare, or who are the GPs, and so we've been trying to get in and link to see what's taking place. Um, so what's been great is people have been housed, which is excellent. We're trying to now work out, what well, how should that healthcare response look like? And there's been some excellent models that have been set up here, looking at bringing people together from some crisis shelters. Uh, that would be good to see if that continues. Um, mm. I guess some of the, the, the big steps are, you know, again, it's highlighted the gaps for those who don't have housing. We need more affordable housing models. Um, We've we need some step-up, set-down step responses for people who have um, physical and mental health conditions so that we're, you know, able to kind of link people into not only accommodation but clinical support at a, at a time of crisis. And we yep. should be able to do that in an ongoing way. That's, that's a good way to do it with the health care. Um, and I think, you know, the other one will be really... Um, you know, trying to look at uh, how do we sit down and go, what what did we learn from this and how could we do things differently? I mean, I think at Micah we were pretty quick to get up and going, but we're used to doing outreach. We're used to deploying fairly quickly. We're used to getting people food, looking at accommodation, working on how we get healthcare. Um, I don't know how visible that's been necessarily to some of the um, hospitals and other funders who don't often see that work taking place in the community. You know, we haven't mm. stopped. I think we need to probably advocate around what has been going on in the community to sustain our most vulnerable and our marginalised. Um, so I hope there's more discussion. So I, I guess for me, what are some of the opportunities from COVID to sit down and go, what do we do quickly and differently because we had to and what difference does it make? And I think there's a lot of good examples of that and why can't we keep doing it? Um, and uh, what what were the barriers to people actually getting care during COVID? Because a lot of people are still missed out on care. Um, and I think it's also highlighted who those groups are and how they continually miss out. And so, yeah, for my, yeah a, lot of our, a lot of our people in boarding houses, you know, very little care. Um, but we're accessing them now because we're trying to do this immunisation program. So, um, yeah, so that's been my reflections, I guess. I think there's been a lot of positives and I hope there's more to come, but we will need to sit and really have those honest reflections about what we've done differently and the difference it made or didn't make.
1: Kim, if you could have seen me, I was nodding away agreeing with you all the way through there. Perfect summary, I think, um, of some of the key stuff. And look, I do think as a sector, COVID-19 is giving us another way that we might be able to network um, nationally more conveniently, potentially using Zoom and other things. We might have, you know, virtual conferences in different ways and we might, might be able to have shorter, sharper conversations about some key topics. So I might come yeah. back to you on that. Anyway, um, just a final question I'm asking everyone on this podcast series is um, what's a story or account, an encounter that's really inspired and informed the work that you do and gives you inspiration to keep making a difference? Is there a particular event or story you'd like to share with us today? Um, I think there's
2: lots, lots of stories from even today, my today's clinic. Um, you know, I, I was reading this again and I, I kind of came up with a summary rather than a particular case. I guess uh, it, it, what inspires me is, you know, I work with amazing people. I, I meet amazing people who have endured significant hardship and trauma and, you know, they, they um, just keep getting up and continuing on and they have to keep overcoming some systems that are just so incredibly difficult that... that uh, it, it, you know, probably that frustration inspired me, John. Actually, system mm, yep. uh, hurdles—we uh, call it here system fatigue—amongst our teams. It's this exhausting work you have to do to assist people to really get what they should be receiving. And the fact that they haven't received it means that things have gotten worse for them. And mm. so, I guess what inspired me is probably the people who put through the net. You know, I'm sort of one of the strongest advocates in that space with our team around. You know. When we see some of these cases, we just go, how did did this happen? How did this keep happening? How did this person just keep flipping through the net? Why didn't anyone just stop and go, hang on a minute, let's just take the time to get some more information, to obviously build that relationship, um, to actually um, sit with the person and to stick with the person and actually try and put some solutions in place, really practical, pragmatic ones to start with, but then start to look at the complexity there and unpack it and advocate really strongly for some better care and support that person to implement that care. Mm. Um, And what I find is, you know, people just seem to be pushed or moved from one service to the next and it's never anyone else's fault in the system, it's always the person. Mm. So... I don't know if that's inspiration, but it definitely fires me on, John, to, <laughs> uh, to keep advocating and doing the work. And, um, you know, some of it's just kind of nonsensical, really. Uh, I think the other challenge that does inspire us, is a lot of people we support don't have any family anymore. Mm. supporting them. It's not that they don't have family, they don't care or haven't cared, but, you know, a lot of bridges have been broken. But for a lot, they're really isolated. Um, and they don't have anyone who, who can go in and advocate and say, hang on a minute, why did this happen? Um, yeah. So we see some pretty horrendous cases where it's just kind of not acceptable. Um, so that's what inspires myself and probably the teams that I work with in around really kind of nutting out what's going on and building that relationship with the person and going the distance as it's required. Because, you know, most people move on and their life um, was on and if and people have capacity and they want they want to move forward with their life. You know, they're just in a period of time where they need a lot more assistance to actually yeah. try and sort these things out. And so I guess if if that's the right answer, that would probably be my inspiration is, is uh, so there's
1: yeah. no right answer in this one, Kim, and I bet uh, I tell you if i was if I was struggling, I'd love to have you in my corner. I reckon you'd be a great advocate to people. <laughs> so, Kim, wonderful to talk to you and lovely to hear your passion and your really, really well-articulated knowledge about what needs to change in the system.
0: So thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, John. Thanks for the
1: opportunity. Take care.
0: To subscribe to a printed copy of Parity magazine, visit chp.org.au forward slash parity. This podcast series has been developed by St. Vincent's Health Australia. For more information about St. Vincent's, visit www.svha.org.au. The music track for this podcast is called Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod, host of incompetech.filmmusic.io and is licensed under the Creative Commons 4.0 by Attributions License. This information, information about our guests and more can be found in the text under the podcast description. Thanks for listening.